This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. This seemed so anomalous, and the house had seemed so well secured with the great wall around it, and it seemed like the safest place to have a child and to protect a child. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. The brutal murder of a three-year-old shocked Victorian England, not only because of how it happened, but because of who the police suspected. Could one of Britain's most famous detectives solve the case? Author Kate Summerscale tells us the story at the center of her book, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. Let's start with where we are in time. What year are we talking about and where does the central action take place in your story? This um, murder took place in a village in the English countryside in Wiltshire in 1860. So it was the sort of height of Victoria's reign over Britain and a time when the domestic ideal was at its height as well. The idea of the sanctity of the home and the perfection of the sort of bourgeois middle class family. Tell me a little bit about the village, because we have a largely American audience who I'm sure is picturing idyllic, you know, British countryside and the thatched roofs and just the the beauty of it. Is that what we're talking about? It's not so much that thatched roofs in that part of west of England, but um, very lovely, yes, very sort of lush fields. And in the summer of 1860, all the sort of harvests were being cut, lots of of wildflowers and birds. And it's a pretty idyllic hamlet, mostly stone houses. And the house in which the murder took place was the grandest house in the village, a Georgian building with its own grounds and enclosed with a high stone wall. Tell me what the family dynamic was for people in the 1860s in this particular village. Are we talking about, you know, a husband who's a laborer predominantly, or are we talking about wealthier people? We're talking wealthier people. The patriarch, the father in this household, was a factory inspector. So there was some resentment against him in the village because it was part of his job to stop children going into the factories to work, which left many families hard up because they'd been relying on their children's wages. Um, And he was a bit sort of bad-tempered and quite private man who was um, not much liked by the family. And he lived in the house with his second wife, formerly the governess to his children, his first wife having died, apparently insane, and with the four children of the first marriage and also two new children. And his wife was pregnant with a third. So it was a big family and a mixed family, two, two families in one, really. 
Tell me more about the ill-tempered part of the patriarch of the family before we talk a little bit more about all these children and everything that's happening in the house. Is this someone we would label as physically and verbally abusive in modern times? He was, per the standards of his time, conventionally harsh. Hmm. And it was more that he was reputed to be harsh with the villagers, with the people of the lower classes than with his own family. Traditionally, people had been able to fish in the river on his land and he banned them from doing so. Hmm. So he excited quite a lot of resentment among the locals. Now I would like to go down the rabbit hole of the factory inspections. How young are we talking about of kids entering the workforce in these factories? And I'm assuming it's dangerous work. Yeah, extremely young. Children went into factories from the age of, of eight or so. And the new Factory Act limited the time that young children could work, but also the age from which they could work. So I think it was um, they couldn't work at all in the factories until they were 14. And then there was a limit on how many hours per day they could do. It was intended to be a humane law that stopped the exploitation of child labour, but it hit some poor families very hard. And it was Samuel Kent's job, the patriarch in this family, to enforce the act, to go into the local mills and factories and stop people from working if they were underage. I'm assuming that he was someone who had been offered many payoffs in his career. Did you find anything about that? I mean, I'm assuming people were really trying to get him on their side. Well, I think perhaps his harshness was part of, I think he was a fairly effective factory inspector and played by the rules, which is why he was so resented. I didn't come across anything to suggest that he colluded with the villagers or the people in the mills, quite the reverse. He was very strict at enforcing the rules, which was why they were so cross with him. Tell me a little bit about his wife. What's her name? And she was the governess, which I know we've throughout history heard about, you know, women coming in and taking care of the children or the family. And then when the wife dies, she marries the husband. What's the feel you have of the dynamic between Samuel Kent and his wife? Well, she was a, um, a much-loved governess, um, by, especially by Constance Kent, the younger daughter, when the mother was alive. But there were rumors that she had been having an affair even during the first wife's life. Hmm. Uh, the first wife was apparently confined to one wing of the house. They were living in a different part of the country then. And Mary and Samuel Kent were having a, an affair which the children were unaware of. When Constance later found this out, she felt very much betrayed by the governess who was now her new stepmother. And even more so, when the new stepmother started having her own children and became less affectionate towards the children that she had looked after as a governess, the children of the first marriage. Remind me the distribution between the children from the first wife and the children from Mary Kent. Is it two? She has two of her own, is that right? Yes, she has two of her own and she's pregnant with a third in the summer of 1860. And there were four from the first marriage, two older girls were very close in age and very close to one another. And then the younger ones, which were Constance, who was 16 at the time of the murders, and her brother William, to whom she was very close, who was 14. Okay. So we have a lot of people in the house. So all of these people are in the house. You've got four kids from a previous marriage, two kids from the current marriage, plus, you know, she's pregnant. Everybody's in the same house and it's a large house. 
Yeah, and there's servants too, of course, because it was that kind of a house. So there was a cook and a maid and there were gardeners coming and going and cobblers and so, you know, there was, um, there was a lot of traffic from the servants in the house and a nursemaid, a nursemaid called Elizabeth Goff, who featured in the story. And a factory inspector would earn that type of income to be able to afford this sort of lifestyle with all of these servants and kids in a large house? Yeah, well, he was the factory inspector of the whole of the west of England. He was um, he wasn't just supervising the factories and mills in his immediate vicinity, and it was a a very prosperous kind of wool country. Lots of sheep, lots of wool, lots of people making fabric, and um, it was the main trade round there. So he was a busy man. He was constantly touring the various different wool mills and and factories, and it was a highly responsible job reporting directly to the government. And you have the impression that he was a father who was a good father, who was affectionate with his kids, even if he was absent for a large part of the time? I don't think he was very affectionate towards his kids, but that was standard for a a Victorian middle-class patriarch. Mm -hmm. He was very, very fond of his youngest son, Saville, with whom he constantly played, a lot of horseplay and so on. Less interested in the girls, I would say, um, who he allowed to just sort of get on with it. Um, He wasn't tyrannical. He was distant and busy, and they were left very much in the care of their stepmother and the nursemaid. Okay. Will you lay out whichever day you think becomes pivotal, you know, all the way through the murder? Where do we start with that part of the story? Well, the family woke up one day at the very end of June and the former governess, new stepmother, discovered that her son, her youngest son, Saville, was missing from his cot. He was just three years old. And it seemed impossible to believe he'd, he'd climbed out. It was a high-sided cot. So she sort of raised the alarm. She asked the nursemaid where he was. She rushed around looking for him and raised everyone else from the staff, her stepchildren, and everyone was searching for Savile. Eventually, villagers were roped in, invited to come and help search the grounds. And eventually, two local men found him dead His throat had been cut horribly and he'd been stuffed down an outside toilet, a privy as they called it, just outside the house. So it was an absolutely horrific scene and the mother was beside herself with distress. And I'm assuming that Samuel Kent had a similar reaction. Yes, he got on a horse and raced off to um, fetch the local policeman to come and see what had happened and work out who had done it. The police came quickly and they interviewed the staff, the family, the villagers, looked for clues, tried to work out who it might be. They spent two weeks on the case without finding any leads whatsoever. It was such a horrific murder, so inexplicable and mysterious and striking at the heart of this rather affluent, well-to-do, respectable family, that it was uh, a national news story. It was reported in the national papers and eventually there was an outcry about why the police had not got anywhere with it. Do you think a lot of this has to do with their class and, of course, their skin color? Yeah, for sure. 
it was very shocking and it felt like an assault on the Victorian domestic ideal. The fuss was so great that and people were writing to the papers and um, very agitated, sending in their own suggestions for who might have killed the boy, that eventually the government dispatched two detective policemen from Scotland Yard to go down to Wiltshire to try to solve the case themselves. And one of those was uh, Jack Witcher, who had joined the detective division when it was first formed in 1842 and who was known as the Prince of Detectives. He had a great reputation as a, an investigator and a kind of visionary who could detect crimes that no one else could. Well, I think it'll be interesting because, of course, I'm very interested in the forensics and who has access to what and and all of that. But I think we can probably talk about through Jack Witcher's eyes, right, because he's the one who's investigating the case. Can we talk a little bit about where we are with detectives at this time? You know, specifically with Scotland Yard, the Bow Street Runners are gone, I'm assuming, right? Right. And these detectives that in the division set up in 1842 were the first plain clothes police officers in Britain. And they were very exciting figures in a way. To begin with, there were only eight of them. By 1860, there were 12, you know, a very elite corps. Hmm. But they were all working class men. They were ordinary coppers who had been elevated to this role because they were so good at their jobs. Hmm. Charles Dickens, for example, was extremely thrilled by the detectives and the idea of the detectives. He liked to consort with them, drink with them, ask them about their adventures because they had this extraordinary access in a very stratified society. The detective could go anywhere Hmm. from the slums of London to palaces and stately homes. And like Dickens himself, they could range across the different strata of society. But they were also, to others, threatening figures because they were working class and they had this um, unprecedented access and power. And the British had a long-held mistrust of surveillance and spies. Hmm. And these plainclothes officers who were unable to cross the threshold of the family home, who had had this kind of access, were seen as sinister and threatening to some. What is the difference in the access between you know, a regular copper, regular officer who might have to go and and look into a murder and a detective, no warrants needed if you're a detective or no permission needed, essentially? Well, I think you'd need a warrant, but the local police in Wiltshire who first investigated this crime, they were very, very polite and deferential to the family. They understood that the family were superior to them in social class and that they would need to be invited into the home. They would ask to come in. Hmm. They wouldn't demand it. They wouldn't take it as a right. So their attitude and the things, the questions they asked, the evidence they sought was very different. So it was more a sort of uh, attitude and custom than the legal force of it that had changed. So let me do a quick summary here. So we have in 1860, end of June, a three-year-old boy from a wealthy family, Savile Kent, has gone missing and then is found at the bottom of a privy with his throat cut. And everybody is in despair. It's a couple of weeks and the police have no clues. And there's all of this public outrage in the newspapers. Not surprising. And we have two detectives from Scotland Yard come in. 
Yeah, so Jack Witcher and, and his sidekick, Dolly Williamson, they arrived at the house, went in, interviewed all the members of the family in more detail than the local officers had. Jack Witcher realised that the killer must have been inside the house because although a window had been found open, it would, would have been impossible for anyone to take the boy out to gain access through the window. And so he thought that the open window was a decoy to try to suggest that someone had broken in. No. He was absolutely convinced that the killer was one of the people within the building. He interviewed the staff and the family very closely and he asked to see their clothes, especially their night clothes and their underwear, the things they might have been wearing at the time of the murder in the night. And this in itself was seen as outrageous, especially when he asked to see the night clothes and shifts of the young ladies in the household. Mm -hmm. He was literally going through their their underwear, you know, taking it into public view. And there was a certain amount of horror, certainly from Samuel Kent, the father, but also people became quite uncomfortable at his intrusion and his apparent insensitivity because most people assumed that this family or each and every one of them was in terrible grief over the death of the boy. And he was just sort of barging in and asking intimate questions and making it clear that every one of them was under suspicion. How many viable suspects does he have in that house based on the kid's age? Because I can't remember the range. I know we have a 16-year-old girl, but who else is capable in that house besides the parents of doing this? Well, there's the 14-year-old boy, William, there are also the two older sisters, Mary Ann and Elizabeth, who were in their late 20s and lived on the top floor. Constance and William were just along the corridor from Savile's room. Savile's mother was pretty much ruled out as a suspect because she was, well, not only was she his mother, which was thought impossible that she should want to harm her child, mm. but she was also heavily pregnant. But the nursemaid came under suspicion. She had access to the nursery. She had been the first one the mother turned to and asked where he was. She was the one who was expected to know where he was. And of course, it was possible that the cook and the maid downstairs had been somehow involved. But there were suggestions that the nursemaid in particular, there was one story that went around that perhaps she'd had a lover, a man from the village, and the little boy had woken because she shared a room with younger children. Hmm. Um, so somehow the boy had been spirited out of the room while she was there. There was one theory, the boy had woken up and seen her in bed with a man, and that in order to silence him, they had between them killed him. Another theory was that it was the father who'd been in bed with the nursemaid, and again, that um, the boy had woken up and that they had killed him so that he wouldn't report it to his mother. So there were some very um, wild theories going around the name of this family and all the speculation and rumour and fantasy about what might be happening was being sort of dragged through the mud. And all the stuff came out about the fact that the, the boy's mother had previously been the governess, that she'd been having an affair with the father before they moved to the village. And it was, it was all very disgracing and shaming for the family. And the news about the previous wife having been insane, people started speculating about whether one of her children 
Mary Anne, Elizabeth, Constance, William might have inherited her insanity and killed the boy for that reason. The idea that this family who'd been struck by tragedy were also being speculated about when libel laws were very weak, very freely in the pages of the press and apparently in the minds of the detective officers. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. So which of these theories did Jack Witcher and his partner subscribe to the most strongly? What did they believe? Jack Witcher, he came to believe that Constance Kent, the 16-year-old half-sister of Saville, the boy who had died, had killed him. And he backed up this belief with a story about how she had a missing, a nightdress missing, the number of nightdresses in her drawers was incorrect. It was one short. Hmm. She insisted that the correct number of nightdresses had gone to the laundry that week, but that one had not been returned. And the laundress seemed to confirm this. But he was convinced that somehow, by some sleight of hand, Constance had hidden and destroyed a bloodied nightdress and that she was the perpetrator. What was the motive? What did he think was the reason behind it? He thought that she wanted to hurt her stepmother Hmm. because she had loved her so much as a child, loved her more than her own mother, and had felt deeply betrayed when the stepmother married her father and more or less abandoned her. She became much more interested in her actual children, her new babies, Hmm. than the children of Samuel Kent's previous wife. Witcher's theory was that Constance was burning with rage against her stepmother and she knew what would hurt her more than anything and hurt her father too was to take their favourite child and, and kill it. And I suppose the boy, Witcher thought the boy represented everything that she resented as well, because he was the apple of his parents' eye and the previous family had become secondary. They were more or less ignored. They weren't given new clothes. They had to sort of make do with what they had. And um, she felt neglected and enraged on the behalf of her brother too, her brother William, her younger brother, 14 years old, who she was extremely fond of. 
She and William, previously, a few years earlier, had once run away together. They tried to run away to sea. Constance had chopped off all her hair and she'd thrown it in the privy, the same privy that Savile was found, mm. and Witcher thought this was very significant and that it also indicated her capacity for rebellion and the depths of her anger with her father and her stepmother. Tell me about access again. You said there's a large wall around the house, right? But there was a window open. But Witcher felt like the window was a decoy. And did he feel strong? Like there is no way anybody from the outside world could have gotten into this house without, you know, a key or something. Samuel Kent went round the building every night, making sure that all the windows and doors were locked. And he confirmed that he had done that on the night before his son was murdered. And it was impossible to open this window from the outside. It was impossible to open it from the outside. Hmm. And did you say the privy was within the wall, within the property, or is it a separate place? It's a separate. It was an outhouse. It was next to something called the knife house and the boot house. They were little sheds just beyond the kitchen outside the building itself. The building was very sort of elegant and had various outhouses for different purposes. So this was a privy not used by the family, but used by the, the labourers, the people who worked in the grounds. Could Constance, with what you know, have done this? Did she have the access? Could she have slipped away? Could all of this reasonably happen based on what you know of how tightly locked up this place was and where everyone was located at the time? It seems possible. One thing, another thing which uh, concluded, which seems right to me, is that whoever took Savile from his cot in a room where his nursemaid was sleeping, he must have known whoever took him, because they were confident that he would make no noise, hmm. unless it was the nursemaid herself, or as people speculated, a lover. It had to be somebody who Savile would willingly be taken by in order for them, and or who could explain their presence if he did wake up and cause a fuss. There was uh, suggestions that he'd been anaesthetized. There was no evidence of this, but this was one of the speculations as a way of getting him out of the house silently. Mm -hmm. But there was no evidence of that. And it does seem likely that somebody who he knew would have been able to lift him out of his cot and, and take him away without his complaining. And if they had been caught, could have explained it as though they were just playing or just visiting or or something like that if they'd been caught in the act of, of taking him from his room. On that score, it seemed possible. Also, she was a strong young woman. She was quite unlike her younger brother, William, who was quite slight. She was reputed to like doing boxing matches with other girls at school. Oh. She was quite <laughs> she was quite a tough girl, and Witcher deemed her physically capable of of taking the boy. Though he did, he was puzzled by how she'd managed to both carry him and open the window and hustle him out and take him to the privy and carry the knife. It did all seem quite difficult, but not impossible. And yes, it physically, it did seem that whoever took him must have been sleeping in the house that night, must have been staying in the house that night. Um, he seemed absolutely right on that. But Elizabeth, the nursemaid, was sleeping in Savile's room, is that right? Yeah. 
Wow. So again, these speculations that it could only have been her, for a while they had a lot of traction. She came under a lot of suspicion. She was arrested. She was taken to the magistrate's court. There was, for some time, she was the chief suspect. And it was Witcher, really, who intervened and said, no, I don't think so. I think it's Constance. I just don't see how a shift in a kind of a tough girl would have convinced him over an adult who's sleeping in the same room next to this boy, who's not a member of the family. Yeah, although he sort of proceeded with kind of quite forensic care and the theory he came up with about the nightdress and how it had been concealed was very ingenious. Really, what he was about was psychology. Hmm. He talked to these women and he, he believed Elizabeth Goff. There was no evidence that she'd had a man in her room mm-hmm. and he didn't think she had. He believed her. And when he spoke to Constance, he detected something in her, something angry and defiant. And he fixed on her in an almost, in an intuitive way. And it was his downfall, really, that he could not find the nightdress. They trawled the nearby river or the knife. The murder weapon was not found. And he couldn't find any evidence to prove his suspicions. They were suspicions. They were his reading of character Mm. and body language and mannerism and speech. He couldn't back it up with evidence. And as a result, when he put his case to the magistrates, he was put under a lot of pressure to come up with a solution quickly. He said he needed more time and they wouldn't give him it because of the national scandal of of this case and the outrage at it not being solved. So he accused Constance, admitted he didn't have any physical evidence and was severely censured by some of the magistrates and, um, and the press and so on for the terrible aspersions he was casting on this bereaved... 16-year-old girl without any evidence to back it up. And I'm assuming the Kent family, so Samuel and Mary and these kids, are they all saying the same thing? There's no way she did it. A stranger must have done it. Or does anybody cast suspicion on Constance at any point, in the media at least, from the family's point of view? Samuel Kent, the boy's father, he said, of course she couldn't have done it. But there was some ambivalence in him, which Witcher detected, Mm. and in a local doctor who knew the family well and who said things about Constance that suggested that she was unstable. Samuel Kent seemed to be playing a sort of bit of a double game of, of sometimes defending her, but sometimes saying things that suggested he didn't trust her Hmm. and that she had been resentful of the young child. The others in the family all fiercely defended her and said, of course, it was impossible that she could have done such a thing. But the mother, the Savile's mother, was very uneasy about her and feared that she might have been capable of doing it. So Constance is never charged, right? And Witcher has been severely censured. Is there anything that happens in this case while Witcher is still alive, while Constance is still living in the house? Well, Constance was briefly charged and her father went to see her in prison where she was being held, but she was then discharged after the magistrates basically threw out Witcher's case. Witcher then went back to London pretty much in disgrace. Hmm. I mean, the backlash from this case and the sense of the impropriety 
and insolence with which he'd behaved, the tactlessness and, and cruelty as it was perceived of his, of his investigation basically ended his career. He was never put on another major murder investigation. He just did desk work and behind the scenes stuff for the next five years and eventually retired from the detective force with a condition he called congestion of the brain. I think he had a breakdown, a nervous breakdown. Mm. Constance continued to live at home for a bit, but then her father sent her off to various places, to finishing schools, to a convent in France. There was a sense that the family were trying to sort of get her out of the way. Mm. The cloud of suspicion still hung over all of them. So Samuel Kent was um, treated with contempt at the factories he visited and so on. He had to move away from the area because many people believed the story that he had killed his son because he'd been having an affair with the nursemaid. So this carried on for a few years, but when Constance was 21, so five years after the murder, she suddenly came forward she went to London, which had retired from the force, and she made a confession. She said that she had killed her brother. <laughs> uh, she didn't really give a, a good reason for it. She denied completely that it had been jealousy, but she said she'd done it. And she was very calm about it. She was tried, sentenced to death, but then the sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. And she served the next 20 years in prison. Wow. Which he was vindicated. And he had a sort of second wind in that he became a very pioneering private investigator in London. And very, rather late in life, he married his landlady. But yes, he had, he'd been broken by the case, but her confession uh, partly redeemed him. When I read the files on the case in the uh, Metropolitan Police archives, I could see all his original notes, all his expenses files, his notes on his interviews with Constance and everyone else, his reports to his officers back in Scotland Yard while he was down in Wiltshire. And I realised that something he'd not said at the time, but that he thought that someone else had been involved in the murder too, not only Constance. Hmm. And when she confessed... He wondered if her confession had actually, that she had carried out the murder, but the purpose of the confession was to shield the other person who had been involved and that she had still not told the complete truth. Why would she come forward after five years? I know it was sort of always speculation, but nobody's reopened this case, I'm assuming, at that point. She had come under the influence of a, an Anglican priest Oh. Um, and she'd become slightly spiritual in her beliefs, more spiritual than she had been. But she said that wasn't the reason. The priest said he hadn't urged her to confess. But there were some things about the timing of it without divulging who exactly she was, may have been protecting. As I said, she had this cloud had been hanging over her entire family and Perhaps she wanted to lift that cloud and to enable her family to have some freedom. Perhaps that was the thing. Rather than contrition for the murder itself, it was more about the fates of living people that she cared at that point and she realised she could do something about it. She could clear their names by coming forward herself. Did it clear the Kent family name? Yes, it did. It made it easier for Samuel Kent and his wife, Mary, and their children to 
live a life free of suspicion. And Constance's older sisters were also completely cleared of any suspicion that had attached to them. Mm. And her brother, William, was able to pursue his ambitions to be a marine biologist and naturalist. And he moved to Australia, where he became one of the first people to chart and paint the Great Barrier Reef and did some very beautiful work in terms of his observations and sort of artistic renderings of the flora and fauna he found out there. Well, not to get too detailed, but I'm still stuck on Witcher back in 1860, on Witcher being focused on how could she have carried out a sleeping Savile through a window. Did she give any insight on the actual procedure, what she did, where she killed them, how all of it worked without anyone in this house knowing? Her story didn't quite add up. That was part of the thing that, you know, when she eventually confessed, it still didn't really make sense. It it physically didn't work, what she was describing, Hmm. which confirmed Witcher's suspicion that, uh, that there might have been someone else involved. Because, of course, if somebody else had been there, another person could have carried the knife, opened the window, opened doors because she had to go downstairs and, and outside and then get rid of the evidence. And she didn't really account for quite a lot of that. She didn't really explain quite a lot of that. Um, it was as if, you know, there were gaps in, in her confession in terms of the plausibility of it. What do you think? Do you think there was another person involved with this? And do you believe her to begin with? I believe she did do it. And I believe there was another person involved in it. Can you narrow down kid or adult? Uh, kid. Okay. <laughs> I bet I bet we could figure that one out. Wow. Constance Kent. She too ended up in Australia like amazingly although she served 20 years in prison which is essentially a life sentence she was only 41 when she came out. Wow. And she went out to Australia under an alias and she became a nurse and she worked with delinquent children. <laughs> Gosh. And on a leprosy colony, and she lived to the age of uh, 101. Oh my gosh. She lived right into the 1940s, which is quite sort of astonishing. It's such a Victorian story, but uh, her resilience. And I'd like to think some sort of atonement in the work she did out in Australia, the way she dedicated herself to helping others, especially young others. Um, which could correlate both to her young self, but also to the child she had killed. But it does suggest she took some sort of moral responsibility for what had happened. Is there anything that Witcher or Scotland Yard could have done in 1860 more if Witcher had been taken seriously in his accusations against Constance? Is there anything that they could have done that could have tied her more tightly to the crime? Or was this some sort of missed opportunity? Because from what you're telling me, you know, even though, yes, she confessed, there's definitely not enough evidence. Now there wouldn't be enough evidence, but there's a lot more that could be done now. I think he was hampered both by the amount of time he was given, but also by how everyone was flinching at the fact he was interviewing this family at all. You know, he was not really allowed to or encouraged to intrude on their grief to interview them sufficiently. It was like, no, you've talked to her, you've talked to the father, that's enough now. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't given that sort of support because of the class issues, the social issues around it. 
But I think, in essence, Constance had done a very good job of sticking by her story, Mm -hmm. of getting rid of the evidence. He couldn't find anything. And his story about the nightdresses, it turned out, was true about the way that she'd given it to the laundress and then got someone to go and get a glass of water, stolen the nightdress back. It seemed so far-fetched, but it turned out in her confession that that's exactly what she did. But it was such a complex little story, like a con trick, that I don't think people understood it at the time and just thought he was talking nonsense. The way it was reported in the papers made it sound ridiculous. He wasn't given enough sort of uh, credit or his intelligence and credibility weren't respected enough. He wasn't given enough time. But truly, maybe no one could have nailed this case because it was extremely difficult. And with his two weeks that had passed between the commission of the murder and his arrival in Wiltshire, there'd been plenty of time to concoct stories, dispose of evidence yeah. and so on. It was it was perhaps an impossible task that could only be solved by a hypothesis. Turns out his hypothesis was right. Tell me what you think the lesson learned is. What can we take from this story and move forward into our time about crime, who commits the crime, how we investigate crimes? Well, it sort of reminds me, in detective fiction, in crime fiction and mysteries, we get very hung up on the, and intrigued by the sort of puzzle aspect of it, the clues, the forensics, all this kind of thing. It's very absorbing and and enjoyable. But in life, I think the detective who can just read character that intuition and a feel for what's likely and what's possible is actually often the thing that gets things solved. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.